CD 8. They had chosen the first pyramid at random. The king peered at the cartouche on the door. Blessed is Queen Fari Patar, read Dill dutifully. Ruler of the skies, lord of the Dajel, master of... Grandma Poony, said the king. She'll do. He looked at their startled faces. That's what I used to call her when I was a little boy. I couldn't pronounce Far-Rapatar, you see. Well, go on then, stop gawking, break the door down. Gurn hefted the hammer uncertainly. It's a pyramid, master, he said, appealing to Dill. You're not supposed to open them. What do you suggest, the lad? We stick a table knife in the slot and wiggle it about, said the king. Do it, Gurn, said Dill. It will be all right. Gurn shrugged, spat on his hands, which were in fact quite damp enough with the sweat of terror, and swung. Again, said the king. The great slab boomed as the hammer hit it, but it was granite and held. A few flakes of mortar floated down, and then the echoes came back, shunting back and forth along the dead avenues of the necropolis. Again! Gurn's biceps moved like turtles in Greece. This time there was an answering boom, such as might be caused by a heavy lid crashing to the ground far away. They stood in silence, listening to a slow shuffling noise from inside the pyramid. Shall I hit it again, sire? said Gurn. They both waved him into silence. The shuffling grew closer. Then the stone moved. It stuck once or twice, but nevertheless it moved slowly, pivoting on one side so that a crack of dark shadow appeared. Dill could just make out a darker shape in the blackness. "'Yes?' it said. "'It's me, Grandma,' said the king. The shadow stood motionless. "'What? Young Poodle?' it said suspiciously. The king avoided Dill's face. "'That's right, Grandma. We've come to let you out.' "'Who are these men?' said the shadow petulantly. I've got nothing, young man, she said to Gurn. I don't keep any money in the pyramid, and you can put that weapon away. It doesn't frighten me. They're servants, Grandma, said the king. Have they got any identification? muttered the old lady. I'm identifying them, Grandma. We've come to let you out. I was hammering ours, said the late queen, emerging into the sunlight. She looked exactly like the king, except that the mummy wrappings were greyer and dusty. I had to go and have a lie-down come the finish. No one cares about you when you're dead. Where are we going? To let the others out, said the king. Damn good idea! The old queen lurched into step behind him. So, this is the netherworld, is it? she said. Not much of an improvement. She elbowed Gurn sharply. You dead too, young man? No, ma'am, said Gurn, in the shaky, brave tones of someone on a tightrope over the chasms of madness. It's not worth it. Be told. Yes, ma'am. The king shuffled across the ancient pavings to the next pyramid. I know this one, said the queen. It was here in my day. King ashk er men -tep, Third Empire. What's the hammer for, young man? Please, ma'am, I have to hammer on the door, ma'am, said Gurn. You don't have to knock. He's always in. My assistant means to smash the seals, Mum, said Dill, anxious to please. Who are you? the Queen demanded. My name is Dill, O oh Queen. 
Master Embalmer. Oh, you are, are you? I've got some stitching once seeing to. It will be an honour and a privilege, O Queen, said Dill. Yes, it will, she said, and turned creakily to Gurn. Hammer away, young man, she said. Spurred by this, Gurn brought the hammer round in a long, fast arc. It passed in front of Dill's nose, making a noise like a partridge, and smashed the seal into pieces. What emerged when the dust had settled was not dressed in the height of fashion. The bandages were brown and mouldering, and, Dill noticed with professional concern, already beginning to go at the elbows. When it spoke, it was like the opening of ancient caskets. I woke up, it said, and there was no light. Is this the netherworld? It would appear not, said the Queen. This is all? Hardly worth the trouble of dying, was it? said the Queen. The ancient king nodded, but gently, as though he was afraid his head would fall off. Something, he said, must be done. He turned to look at the great pyramid and pointed with what had once been an arm. Who sleepies there? he said. It's mine, actually, said Tepi Kaimon, lurching forward. I don't think we've met. I haven't been interred as yet. My son built it for me. It was against my better judgment, believe me. It is a dreadful thing, said the ancient king. I felt its building. Even in the sleep of death I felt it. It is big enough to inter the world. I wanted to be buried at sea, said Tepikaimon. I hate pyramids. You do not, said Ashk Ur Men Tep. Excuse me, but I do, said the king politely. But you do not. What you feel now is mild dislike when you have lain in one for a thousand years, said the ancient one. Then you will begin to know the meaning of hate. Tepikaimon shuddered. The sea, he said, that's the place. You just dissolve away. They set off towards the next pyramid. Gurn led the way, his face a picture, possibly one painted late at night by an artist who got his inspiration on prescription. Dill followed. He held his chest high. He'd always hoped to make his way in the world, and here he was now, walking with kings. Well, lurching with kings. It was another nice day in the high desert. It was always a nice day, if by nice you meant an air temperature like an oven and sand you could roast chestnuts on. You bastard ran fast, mainly to keep his feet off the ground for as long as possible. For a moment, as they staggered up the hills outside the olive-treed, field-patchworked oasis around Ephib, Tepic thought he saw the unnamed as a tiny speck on the azure sea, but it might have been just a gleam on a wave. Then he was over the crest, into a world of yellow and umber. For a while scrubby trees held on against the sand, but the sand won and marched triumphantly onwards, dune after dune. The desert was not only hot, it was quiet. There were no birds, none of the susurration of organic creatures busily being alive. At night there might have been the whine of insects, but they were deep under the sand against the scorch of day, 
and the yellow sky and yellow sand became an anechoic chamber in which you bastard's breath sounded like a steam engine. Tepic had learned many things since he first went forth from the old kingdom, and he was about to learn one more. All authorities agree that when crossing the scorching desert it is a good idea to wear a hat. You bastards settled into the shambling trot that a prime racing camel can keep up for hours. After a couple of miles, Tepic saw a column of dust behind the next dune. Eventually they came up behind the main body of the Ephebian army, swinging along around half a dozen battle elephants, their helmet plumes waving in the oven breeze. They cheered on general principles as Tepic went past. Battle elephants, Tepic groaned. To sort went in for battle elephants too. Battle elephants were the fashion lately. They weren't much good for anything except trampling on their own troops when they inevitably panicked, so the military minds on both sides had responded by breeding bigger elephants. Elephants were impressive. For some reason, many of these elephants were towing great carts full of timber. He jogged onwards as the sun wound higher, and, and this was unusual, blue and purple dots began to pinwheel gently across the horizon. Another strange thing was happening. The camel seemed to be trotting across the sky. Perhaps this had something to do with the ringing noise in his ears. Should he stop? But then the camel might fall off. It was long past noon when you bastards staggered into the baking shade of the limestone outcrop, which had once marked the edge of the valley, and collapsed very slowly into the sand. Tepic rolled off. A detachment of Ephebians were staring across the narrow space towards a very similar number of Tesortians on the other side. Occasionally, for the look of the thing, one of them waved a spear. When Tepic opened his eyes, it was to see the fearsome bronze masks of several Ephebian soldiers peering down at him. Their metal mouths were locked in sneers of terrible disdain. Their shining eyebrows were twisted in mortal anger. One of them said, "'He's coming round, Sarge!' A metal face like the anger of the elements came closer, filling Tepic's vision. "'We've been out without our hat, haven't we, sonny boy?' it said in a cheery voice that echoed oddly inside the metal. "'In a hurry to get the grips with the enemy, were we?' The sky wheeled around Tepic, but a thought bobbed into the frying pan of his mind, seized control of his vocal cords and croaked, "'The camel!' "'You ought to be put away treating it like that,' said a sergeant, waggling a finger at him. "'Never seen one in such a state.' "'Don't let it have a drink!' Tepic sat bolt upright, great gongs clanging, and hot, heavy fireworks going off inside his skull. The helmeted heads turned towards one another. "'God, he must have something really terrible against camels,' said one of them. Tepic staggered upright and lurched across the sand to you bastard, who was trying to work out the complex equation which would allow him to get to his feet. His tongue was hanging out, and he was not feeling well. A camel in distress isn't a shy creature. It doesn't hang around in bars nursing a solitary drink. It doesn't phone up old friends and sob at them. It doesn't mope or write long, soulful poems about life and how dreadful it is when seen from a bedsitter. It doesn't know what angst is. All a camel has got is a pair of industrial-strength lungs and a voice like a herd of donkeys being chainsawed. Tepic advanced through the blaring. You bastard reared his head and turned it this way and that, triangulating. His eyes rolled madly as he did the camel trick of apparently looking at Tepic with his nostrils. He spat. He tried to spit. Tepic grabbed his halter and pulled on it. 
Come on, you bastard, he said. There's water. You can smell it. All you have to do is work out how to get there. He turned to the assembled soldiers. They were staring at him with expressions of amazement, apart from those who hadn't removed their helmets and who were staring at him with expressions of metallic ferocity. Tepic snatched a water skin from one of them, pulled out the stopper and tipped it onto the ground in front of the camel's twitching nose. "'There's a river here,' he hissed. "'You know where it is. All you've got to do is go there.' The soldiers looked around nervously. So did several Tesortians, who'd wandered up to see what was going on. You bastard got to his feet, knees trembling, and started to spin around in a circle. Tepic clung on. "'Let D equal four thought you bastard desperately. Let A point D equal 90. Let not D equal 45. I need a stick, shouted Tepic as he whirled past the sergeant. They never understand anything unless you hit them with a stick. It's like punctuation to a camel. Is a sword any good? No, the sergeant hesitated, then passed Tepic his spear. He grabbed it point-end first, fought for balance, and then brought it smartly across the camel's flank, raising a cloud of dust and hair. You bastard stopped. His ears turned like radar aerials. He stared at the rock wall, rolling his eyes. Then, as Tepic grabbed a handful of hair and pulled himself up, the camel started to trot. Think fractals. Yeah, you're going to run straight into... The sergeant began... There was silence. It went on for a long time. The sergeant shifted uneasily. Then he looked across the rocks to the Tesortians and caught the eye of their leader. With the unspoken understanding that is shared by centurions and sergeant majors everywhere, they walked towards one another along the length of the rocks and stopped by the barely visible crack in the cliff. The Tesortian sergeant ran his hand over it. You'd think there'd be some, you know... "'Camel hairs or something,' he said. "'Or blood,' said the Ephebian. "'I reckon it's one of them unexplainable phenomena. "'Oh, that's all right, then.' "'The two men stared at the stone for a while. "'Like a mirage,' said the Tesortian helpfully. "'One of them things, yes. "'I thought I heard a seagull, too. "'Daft, isn't it? You don't get them out here.' The Tesortian coughed politely and stared back at his men. Then he leaned closer. "'The rest of your people will be along directly, I expect,' he said. The Ephebian stepped a bit closer, and when he spoke, it was out of the corner of his mouth while his eyes apparently remained fully occupied by looking at the rocks. "'That's right,' he said. "'And yours too, may I ask?' "'Yes. I expect we'll have to massacre you if ours get here first. "'Likewise, I shouldn't wonder.' Still, can't be helped. One of those things, really, agreed the Tesortian. The other man nodded. Funny old world, when you come to think about it. You've put your finger on it all right. The sergeant loosened his breastplate a bit, glad to be out of the sun. Rations OK on your side, he said. Oh, you know, mustn't grumble. Like us, really. Because if you do grumble, they get even worse. Just like ours. Yeah, you haven't got any figs on your side, have you? I could just do with a fig. Sorry. Just thought I'd ask. Got plenty of dates, if they're any good to you. Nah, we're OK on dates, thanks. Sorry. The two men stood a while, lost in their own thoughts. 
Then the Ephebian put on his helmet again, and the Tesortian adjusted his belt. Right then. Right then. They squared their shoulders, stuck out their chins, and marched away. A moment later they turned about smartly, and exchanging the merest flicker of an embarrassed grin, headed back to their own sides. Book Four. The Book of A Hundred and One Things a Boy Can Do. Tepic had expected... what? Possibly the splat of flesh hitting rock? Possibly, although this was on the very edge of expectation, the sight of the old kingdom spread out below him? He hadn't expected chilly, damp mists. It is now known to science that there are many more dimensions than the classical four. Scientists say that these don't normally impinge on the world because the extra dimensions are very small and curve in on themselves, and that since reality is fractal, most of it is tucked inside itself. This means either that the universe is more full of wonders than we can hope to understand, or, more probably, that scientists make things up as they go along. But the multiverse is full of little dimensionettes. Play streets of creation, where creatures of the imagination can romp without being knocked down by serious actuality. Sometimes, as they drift through the holes in reality, they impinge back on this universe when they give rise to myths, legends, and charges of being drunk and disorderly. And it was into one of these that you bastard, by a trivial miscalculation, had trotted. Legend had got it nearly right. The Sphinx did lurk on the borders of the kingdom. The legend just hadn't been precise about what kind of borders it was talking about. The Sphinx is an unreal creature. It exists solely because it has been imagined. It is well known that in an infinite universe everything that can be imagined must exist somewhere, and since many of them are not things that ought to exist in a well-ordered space-time frame, they get shoved into a side dimension. This may go some way to explaining the Sphinx's chronic bad temper, although any creature created with the body of a lion, bosom of a woman, and wings of an eagle has a serious identity crisis and doesn't need much to make it angry. So it had devised the riddle. Across various dimensions it had provided the Sphinx with considerable entertainment and innumerable meals. This was not known to Tepic, as he led you bastard through the swirling mists, but the bones he crunched underfoot gave him enough essential detail. A lot of people had died here, and it was reasonable to assume that the more recent ones had seen the remains of the earlier ones and would therefore have proceeded stealthily, and that hadn't worked. No sense in creeping along, then. Besides, some of the rocks that loomed out of the mists had a very distressing shape. This one here, for example, looked exactly like... Halt! said the Sphinx. There was no sound but the drip of the mist and the occasional sucking noise of you bastards trying to extract moisture from the air. "'You're a sphinx,' said Tepic. "'They sphinx,' corrected the sphinx. "'Gosh, we've got any amount of statues to you at home.' Tepic looked up, then further up. "'I thought you'd be smaller,' he added. "'Cower, mortal,' said the sphinx, "'for thou art in the presence of the wise and the terrible.' It blinked. Any good, these statues? They don't do you justice, said Tepic, truthfully. Do you really think so? People often get the nose wrong, said the Sphinx. My right profile is best, I'm told, and... It dawned on the Sphinx that it was sidetracking itself. It coughed sternly. Before you can pass me, O oh mortal, 
it said. You must answer my riddle. Why? said Tepic. What? The Sphinx blinked at him. It hadn't been designed for this sort of thing. Why? Why? Because. Er, uh, because, hang on, yes, because I will bite your head off if you don't. Yes, I think that's it. Right, said Tepic. Let's hear it then. The Sphinx cleared its throat with a noise like an empty lorry reversing in a quarry. What goes on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? said the Sphinx smugly. Tepic considered this. That's a tough one, he said eventually. The toughest, said the Sphinx. Um, you never get it. Ah, said Tepic. Could you take your clothes off while you're thinking? The threads play merry hell with my teeth. There isn't some kind of animal that regrows legs that have been entirely the wrong track, said the Sphinx, stretching its claws. Oh, you haven't got the faintest idea, have you? I'm still thinking, said Tepic. You'll never get it. You're right, Tepic stared at the claws. This isn't really a fighting animal, he told himself reassuringly. It's definitely over-endowed. Besides, its bosom will get in the way, even if its brain doesn't. The answer is a man, said the Sphinx. Now, don't put up a fight, please. It releases unpleasant chemicals into the bloodstream. Tepic backed away from a slashing paw. Hold on, hold on, he said. What do you mean, a man? Seasy, said the Sphinx. A baby crawls in the morning, stands on both legs at noon, and at evening an old man walks with a stick. <laughs> Good, isn't it? Tepic bit his lip. We're talking about... One day here, he said doubtfully. There was a long, embarrassing silence. It's, uh, what's the name? A figure of speech, said the Sphinx irritably, making another lunge. No, no, look, wait a minute, said Tepic. I'd like us to be very clear about this, right? I mean, it's only fair, right? Nothing wrong with the riddle, said the Sphinx. Damn good riddle, had that riddle for fifty years. Sphinx and cub. It thought about this. Chick, it corrected. It's a good riddle, Tepic said soothingly. Very deep, very moving, the whole human condition in a nutshell. But you've got to admit, this doesn't all happen to one individual in one day, does it? Well, no, the Sphinx admitted. But that is self-evident from the context. An element of dramatic analogy is present in all riddles, it added with the air of one who had heard the phrase a long time ago and rather liked it, although not to the extent of failing to eat the originator. Yes, but, said Tepic, crouching down and brushing a clear space on the damp sand, is there internal consistency within the metaphor? Let's say, for example, that the average life expectancy is 70 years, OK? OK, said the Sphinx in the uncertain tones of someone who has let the salesman in and is now regretfully contemplating a future in which they are undoubtedly going to buy life insurance. Right, good. So... Noon would be age 35, am I right? Now, considering that most children can toddle at a year or so, the four legs reference is really unsuitable, wouldn't you agree? I mean, most of the morning is spent on two legs. According to your analogy, he paused and did a few calculations with a convenient thigh bone, only about 20 minutes immediately after zero hundred hours, half an hour tops, is spent on four legs. Am I right? Be fair. Well, 
said the Sphinx. By the same token, you wouldn't be using a stick by 6pm, because you'd be only, uh, 52, said Tepic, scribbling furiously. In fact, you wouldn't really be looking at any kind of walking aid until at least half past nine, I think. That's on the assumption that the entire lifespan takes place over one day, which is, I believe I have already pointed out, ridiculous. I'm sorry, it's basically okay, but it doesn't work. Well, said the Sphinx, but irritably this time, I don't see what I can do about it. I haven't got any more. It's the only one I've ever needed. You just need to alter it a bit, that's all. How do you mean? Just make it a bit more realistic. Hmm. The Sphinx scratched its mane with a claw. Okay, it said doubtfully. I suppose I could ask, what is it that walks on four legs, metaphorically speaking, said Tepic. Four legs, metaphorically speaking, the Sphinx agreed, for about twenty minutes, I think we agreed. Okay, fine. Twenty minutes in the morning, on two legs. But I think calling it in the morning is stretching it a bit, said Tepic. It's just after midnight. I mean, technically, it's the morning, but in a very real sense, it's still last night. What do you think? A look of glazed panic crossed the Sphinx's face. What do you think? it managed. Let's just see where we've got to, shall we? What, metaphorically speaking, walks on four legs just after midnight, on two legs for most of the day, barring accidents, said the Sphinx, pathetically eager to show that it was making a contribution. Fine, on two legs, barring accidents, until at least supper time, when it walks with three legs. I've known people use two walking sticks, said the Sphinx, helpfully. Okay, how about when it continues to walk on two legs or with any prosthetic aids of its choice? The Sphinx gave this some consideration. Yes, it said gravely. That seems to fit all eventualities. Well, said Tepic. Well, what, said the Sphinx. Well, what's the answer? The Sphinx gave him a stony look and then showed its fangs. Oh, no, it said. You don't catch me out like that. Think I'm stupid. You've got to tell me the answer. Oh, blow, said Tepic. Thought you had me there, didn't you, said the Sphinx. Sorry. You thought you could get me all confused, did you? The Sphinx grinned. It was worth a try, said Tepic. Can't blame you. So what's the answer then? Tepic scratched his nose. Haven't a clue, he said, unless, and this is a shot in the dark, you understand, it's a man. The Sphinx glared at him. You've been here before, haven't you? It said accusingly. No. Then someone's been talking, right? Who could have talked? Has anyone ever guessed the riddle? said Tepic. No. Well, then they couldn't have talked, could they? The Sphinx's claws scrabbled irritably on its rock. I suppose you'd better move along then, it grumbled. Thank you, said Tepic. I'd be grateful if you didn't tell anyone, please, added the Sphinx coldly. I wouldn't like to spoil it for other people. Tepic scrambled up a rock and onto you bastard. Don't worry about that, he said, spurring the camel onwards. He couldn't help noticing the way the Sphinx was moving its lips silently as though trying to work something out. 
You bastard had gone only twenty yards or so before an enraged bellow erupted behind him. For once he forgot the etiquette that says a camel must be hit with a stick before it does anything. All four feet hit the sand and pushed. This time he got it right. The priests were going irrational. It wasn't that the gods were disobeying them. The gods were ignoring them. The gods always had. It took great skill to persuade a jelly baby god to obey you, and the priests had to be fast on their toes. For example, if you pushed a rock off a cliff, then a quick request to the gods that it should fall down was certain to be answered. In the same way, the gods ensured that the sun set and the stars came out. Any petition to the gods to see to it that palm trees grew with their roots in the ground and their leaves on top was certain to be graciously accepted. On the whole, any priest who cared about such things could ensure a high rate of success. However, it was one thing for the gods to ignore you when they were far off and invisible, and quite another when they were strolling across the landscape. It made you feel such a fool. "'Why don't they listen?' said the high priest of Teg, the horse-headed god of agriculture. He was in tears. Teg had last been seen sitting in a field pulling up corn and giggling. The other high priests were faring no better. Rituals hallowed by time had filled the air in the palace with sweet blue smoke and cooked enough assorted livestock to feed a famine. But the gods were settling in the old kingdom as if they owned it, and the people therein were no more than insects. And the crowds were still outside. Religion had ruled in the old kingdom for the best part of seven thousand years. Behind the eyes of every priest present was a graphic image of what would happen if the people ever thought for one moment that it ruled no more. And so, Dios, said Kumi, we turn to you. What would you have us do now? Dios sat on the steps of the throne and stared gloomily at the floor. The gods didn't listen, he knew that. He knew that of all people. But it had never mattered before. You just went through the motions and came up with an answer. It was the ritual that was important, not the gods. The gods were there to do the duties of a megaphone, because who else would people listen to? While he fought to think clearly, his hands went through the motions of the ritual of the seventh hour, guided by a neural instructions as rigid and unchangeable as crystals. You have tried everything... "'Everything that you advised, O oh Dios,' said Kumi. "'He waited until most of the priests were watching them, "'and then, in a rather louder voice, continued, "'If the king was here, he would intercede for us.' "'He caught the eye of the priestess of Sardak. "'He hadn't discussed things with her. "'Indeed, what was there to discuss? "'But he had an inkling that there was some fellow, sorry, feeling there.' She didn't like Dios very much, but was less in awe of him than were the others. "'I told you that the king is dead,' said Dios. "'Yes, we heard you, yet there seems to be no body. <laughs> oh, Dios, nevertheless we believe what you tell us, for it is the great Dios that speaks, and we pay no heed to malicious gossip.' The priests were silent. "'Malicious gossip, too?' And somebody had already mentioned rumours, hadn't they? Definitely something amiss here. It happened many times in the past, said the priestess on cue. When a kingdom was threatened or the river did not rise, the king went to intercede with the gods, was sent to intercede with the gods. The edge of satisfaction in her voice made it clear that it was a one-way trip. 
Kumi shivered with delight and horror. Oh, yes, those were the days. Some countries had experimented with the idea of the sacrificial king long ago. A few years of feasting and ruling, then chop, and make way for a new administration. In a time of crisis, possibly, any high-born minister of state would suffice, she went on. Dios looked up, his face mirroring the agony of his tendons. I see, he said, and who would the high priest then? The gods would choose, said Kumi. I dare say they would, said Dios sourly. I am in some doubt as to the wisdom of their choice. The dead can speak to the gods in the netherworld, said the priestess. But the gods are all here, said Dios, fighting against the throbbing in his legs, which were insisting that at this time they should be walking along the central corridor en route to supervise the right of the under-sky. His body cried out for the solace over the river. And once over the river, never to return. But he'd always said that. "'In the absence of the king, the high priest performs his duties. "'Isn't that right, Dios?' said Kumi. "'It was. It was written. "'You couldn't rewrite it once it was written. "'He'd written it. Long ago.' "'Dios hung his head. "'This was worse than plumbing. This was worse than anything. "'And yet... and yet to go across the river... "'Very well, then,' he said. "'I have one final request.' "'Yes?' Kumi's voice had timbre now. It was already a high priest's voice. I wish to be interred in the... Dios began and was cut off by a murmur from those priests who could look out across the river. All eyes turned to the distant inky shore. The legions of the kings of Djeli Baby were on the march. They lurched, but they covered the ground quickly. There were platoons, battalions of them, they didn't need Gurn's hammer any more. It's the pickle, said the king, as they watched half a dozen ancestors mummy-handle a seal out of its socket. It toughens you up. Some of the more ancient were getting over-enthusiastic and attacking the pyramids themselves, actually managing to shift blocks higher than they were. The king didn't blame them. How terrible to be dead and know you were dead and locked away in the darkness. They're never going to get me in one of those things, he vowed. At last they came like a tide, to yet another pyramid. It was small, low, dark, half-concealed in drifted sand, and the blocks were hardly even masonry. They were no more than roughly squared boulders. It had clearly been built long before the kingdom got the hang of pyramids. It was barely more than a pile. Hacked into the door seal, angular and deep, were the hieroglyphs of the Ur kingdom. Kuft had me made. The first. Several ancestors clustered around it. Oh dear, said the king, this might be going too far. The first, whispered Dill, the first into the kingdom. No one here before but hippos and crocodiles. From inside that pyramid, seventy centuries look out at us, older than anything. Yes, yes, all right, said Tikaimon. No need to get carried away, he was a man, just like all of us. And Kuft the camel herder looked upon the valley, Dill began. After seven thousand years, he will be wanting to look upon it again, said Ashk-er-men-tep bluntly. Even so, said the king, it does seem a bit. 
The dead are equal, said Ashk-er-Mentep. You, young man, call him forth. Who, me? said Gern, but he was the first. Yes, we've been through all that, said Tepikaimon. Do it. Everyone's getting impatient. So is he, I expect. Gern rolled his eyes and hefted the hammer. Just as it was about to hiss down on the seal, Dill darted forward, causing Gern to dance wildly across the ground in a groin-straining effort to avoid interring the hammer in his master's head. It's open, said Dill. Luke, the seal just swings aside. You mean he is out? Tepikaimon tottered forward and grabbed the door of the pyramid. It moved quite easily. Then he examined the stone beneath it. Derelict and half-covered though it was, someone had taken care to keep a pathway clear to the pyramid, and the stone was quite worn away, as by the passage of many feet. This was not, by the nature of things, the normal state of affairs for a pyramid. The whole point was that once you were in, you were in. The mummies examined the worn entrance and creaked at one another in surprise. One of the very ancient ones, who was barely holding himself together, made a noise like Death Watch Beetle, finally conquering a rotten tree. What did he say? said Tepikaimon. The mummy of Ashk-er-Mentep translated. He said it is... "'Spooky,' he croaked. "'The late king nodded. "'I'm going to have a look. "'You two live ones, you come with me.' "'Dill's face fell. "'Oh, come on, man,' snapped Tepikaimon, forcing the door back. "'Look, I'm not frightened. "'Show a bit of backbone. "'Everyone else is.' "'But we'll need some light,' protested Dill. "'The nearest mummies lurched back sharply "'as Gurn timidly took a tinderbox out of his pocket. "'We'll need—' "'Something to burn,' said Dill. "'The mummies shuffled further back, muttering. "'There's torches in here,' said Tepikaimon, his voice slightly muffled. "'And you can keep them away from me, lad.' "'It was a small pyramid, mazeless, without traps, "'just a stone passage leading upwards. "'Tremulously, expecting at any moment to see unnamed terrors leap out at them, "'the embalmers followed the king into a small square chamber "'that smelled of sand. "'The roof was black with soot.' There was no sarcophagus within, no mummy case, no terror, named or nameless. The centre of the floor was occupied by a raised block, with a blanket and a pillow on it. Neither of them looked particularly old. It was almost disappointing. Gurn craned to look round. "'Quite nice, really,' he said. "'Comfy.' "'No,' said Dill. "'Eh, Master King, Luke here,' said Gurn, trotting over to one of the walls. "'Luke!' "'Someone's been scratching things. "'Look, all little lines all over the wall.' "'And this wall,' said the king, "'and the floor. "'Someone's been counting. "'Every ten have been crossed through, you see. "'Someone's been counting things. "'Lots of things,' he stood back. "'What things?' said Dill, looking behind him. "'Very strange,' said the king. "'He leaned forward. "'You can barely make out the inscriptions underneath.' "'Can you read it, king?' said Gurn, showing what Dill considered to be unnecessary enthusiasm. No, it's in one of the really ancient dialects. Can't make out a blessed hieroglyph, said Tepikaimon. I shouldn't think there's a single person alive today who can read it. That's a shame, said Gurn. True enough, said the king, and sighed. They stood in gloomy silence. So, 
Perhaps we could ask one of the dead ones, said Gurn. Um, Gurn, said Dill, backing away. The king slapped the apprentice on the back, pitching him forward. Damn clever idea, he said. We'll just go and get one of the real early ancestors. Oh, he sagged, that's no good. No one will be able to understand them. Gurn, said Dill, his eyes growing wider. No, it's all right, king, said Gurn, enjoying the newfound freedom of thought, because the reason being, everyone understands someone. All we have to do is sort them out. Bright lad, bright lad, said the king. Gurn! Both looked at him in astonishment. You all right, master, said Gurn. You've gone all white. The t stuttered Dill, rigid with terror. The what, master? The t Look at the t "'He ought to have a lie-down,' said the king. "'I know his sort, the artistic type, highly strung.' "'Dill took a deep breath. "'Look at the sodding torch, Gurn!' he shouted. "'They looked, without any fuss, "'turning its black ashes into dry straw. "'The torch was burning backwards. "'The old kingdom lay stretched out before Tepic, "'and it was unreal.' He looked at you bastard, who had stuck his muzzle in a wayside spring and was making a noise like the last drop in the milkshake glass. You know, the bit you can't reach with the straw. You bastard looked real enough. There was nothing like a camel for looking really solid. But the landscape had an uncertain quality, as if it hadn't quite made up its mind to be there or not. Except for the Great Pyramid. It squatted in the middle distance, as real as the pin that nails a butterfly to a board. It was contriving to look extremely solid, as though it was sucking all the solidity out of the landscape into itself. Well, he was here, wherever here was. How did you kill a pyramid? And what would happen if you did? He was working on the hypothesis that everything would snap back into place, into the old kingdom's pool of recirculated time. He watched the gods for a while, wondering what the hell they were and how it didn't seem to matter. They looked no more real than the land over which they strode, about incomprehensible errands of their own. The world was no more than a dream. Tepic felt incapable of surprise. If seven fat cows had wandered by, he wouldn't have given them a second glance. He remounted you bastard and rode him sloshing gently down the road. The fields on either side had a devastated look. The sun was finally sinking. The gods of the night and evening were prevailing over the daylight gods. But it had been a long struggle, and when you thought about all the things that would happen to it now, eaten by goddesses, carried on boats under the world and so on, it was an odds-on chance that it wouldn't be seen again. No one was visible as he rode into the stable yard. You bastard padded sedately to his stall and pulled delicately at a wisp of hay. He'd thought of something interesting about bivariant distributions. Tepic patted him on the flank, raising another cloud, and walked up the wide steps that led to the palace proper. Still there were no guards, no servants, no living soul. He slipped into his own palace like a thief in the day and found his way to Dill's workshop. It was empty and looked as though a robber with very peculiar tastes had recently been at work in there. The throne room smelled like a kitchen, and by the looks of it, the cooks had fled in a hurry. The gold mask of the kings of the Jelly Baby, slightly buckled out of shape, had rolled into a corner. He picked it up, and on a suspicion, 
scratched it with one of his knives. The gold peeled away, exposing a silver-grey gleam. He'd suspected that. There simply wasn't that much gold around. The mask felt as heavy as lead because, well, it was lead. He wondered if it had ever been all gold and which ancestor had done it and how many pyramids it had paid for. It was probably very symbolic of something or other. Perhaps not even symbolic of anything, just symbolic all by itself. One of the sacred cats was hiding under the throne. It flattened its ears and spat at Tepic as he reached down to pat it. That much hadn't changed, at least. Still no people. He padded across to the balcony. And there the people were, a great silent mass, staring across the river in the fading leaden light. As Tepic watched, a flotilla of boats and ferries set out from the near bank. We ought to have been building bridges, he thought, but we said that would be shackling the river. He dropped lightly over the balustrade onto the packed earth and walked down to the crowd, and the full force of its belief scythed into him. The people of Djeli Baby might have had conflicting ideas about their gods, but their belief in their kings had been unswerving for thousands of years. To Tepic, it was like walking into a vat of alcohol. He felt it pouring into him until his fingertips crackled, rising up through his body until it gushed into his brain, bringing not omnipotence, but the feeling of omnipotence, the very strong sensation that while he didn't actually know everything, he would do soon and had done once. It had been like this back in Ankh, when the divinity had hooked him. But that had just been a flicker. Now it had the solid power of real belief behind it. He looked down at a rustling below him and saw green shoots springing out of the dry sand around his feet. Bloody hell, he thought. I really am a god. This could be very embarrassing. He shouldered his way through the press of people until he reached the riverbank and stood there in a thickening clump of corn. As the crowd caught on, those nearest fell to their knees and a circle of reverentially collapsing people spread out from Tepic like ripples. But I never wanted this. I just wanted to help people live more happily, with plumbing. I wanted something done about run-down inner-city areas. I just wanted to put them at their ease and ask them how they enjoyed their lives. I thought schools might be a good idea so they wouldn't fall down and worship someone just because he's got green feet. And I wanted to do something about the architecture. As the light drained from the sky, like steel going cold, the pyramid was somehow even bigger than before. If you had to design something to give the very distinct impression of mass, the pyramid was it. There was a crowd of figures around it, unidentifiable in the grey light. Tepic looked around the prostrate crowd until he saw someone in the uniform of the palace guard. You, man, on your feet, he commanded. The man gave him a look of dread, but did stagger sheepishly upright. What's going on here? Oh, King, who is the Lord of... I don't think we have time, said Tepic. I know who I am. I want to know what's happening. Oh, King, we saw the dead walking. The priests have gone to talk to them. The dead walking? Yes, oh, King. We're not talking about not alive people here, are we? Yes, oh, King. Oh, well, thank you. That was very succinct. Not informative? but succinct. Are there any boats around? The priests took them all, O king. Tepic could see that this was true. The jetties near the palace were usually thronged with boats, and now they were all empty. As he stared at the water, 
It grew two eyes and a long snout, to remind him that swimming in the Dajel was as feasible as nailing fog to the wall. He stared at the crowd. Every person was watching him expectantly, convinced that he would know what to do next. He turned back to the river, extended his hands in front of him, pressed them together, and then opened them gently. There was a damp, sucking noise, and the waters of the Dajel parted in front of him. There was a sigh from the crowd, but their astonishment was nothing to the surprise of a dozen or so crocodiles who were left trying to swim in ten feet of air. Tepic ran down the bank and over the heavy mud, dodging to avoid the tails that slashed wildly at him as the reptiles dropped heavily onto the riverbed. The Dajel loomed up as two khaki walls so that he was running along a damp and shadowy alley. Here and there were fragments of bones, old shields, bits of spear, the ribs of boats. He leapt and jinked around the debris of centuries. Ahead of him, a big bull crocodile propelled itself dreamily out of the wall of water, flailed madly in mid-air, and flopped into the ooze. Tepic trod heavily on its snout and plunged on. Behind him, a few of the quicker citizens, seeing the dazed creatures below them, began to look for stones. The crocodiles had been undisputed masters of the river since primordial times, but if it was possible to do a little catching up in the space of a few minutes, it was certainly worth a try. The sound of the monsters of the river beginning the long journey to Handbag Hood broke out behind Tepic as he sloshed up the far bank. A line of ancestors stretched across the chamber, down the dark passageway and out into the sand. It was filled with whispers going in both directions, a dry sound like the wind blowing through old paper. Dill lay on the sand, with Gurn flapping a cloth in his face. "'What they're doing?' he murmured. "'Reading the inscription,' said Gurn. "'You ought to see it, Master. The one doing the reading, he's practically—' "'Yes, yes, all right,' said Dill, struggling up. "'He's more than six thousand years old.' and his grandson's listening to him and telling his grandson, and he's telling his grandson, and... Yes, yes, all right. And Kuft too said unto the first, What may we give unto you who has taught us the right ways? said Tepikaimon, who was at the end of the line. But not immediately, of course, because messages change in the telling, and some ancestors were not capable of perfect enunciation, and others were trying to be helpful and supplying what they thought were lost words. The message received by Tepikaimon originally began, handcuffed to the bed the aunt thirsted. And the first spake, and this he spake, build for me a pyramid, that I may rest, and build it of these dimensions, that it be proper. And thus it was done, and the name of the first was... But there was no name. It was just a babble of raised voices, arguments, ancient curse words, spreading along the line of desiccated ancestors like a spark along a powder trail, until it reached Tepikaimon, who exploded. The Ephebian sergeant, quietly perspiring in the shade, saw what he had been half expecting and wholly dreading. There was a column of dust on the opposite horizon. The Tesortian's main force was getting there first. He stood up, nodded professionally to his counterpart across the way, and looked at the double handful of men under his command. I need a messenger to take, um, a message back to the city, he said. A forest of hands shot up. The sergeant sighed and selected young Autocue, who he knew was missing his mum. 
Run like the wind, he said, although I expect you won't need telling, will you? And then... And then... He stood with his lips moving silently, while the sun scoured the rocks of the hot, narrow pass and a few insects buzzed in the scrub bushes. His education hadn't included a course in famous last words. He raised his eyes in the direction of home. Go, tell the Ephebians, he began. The soldiers waited. What? said Auto Q after a while. Go and tell them what? The sergeant relaxed, like air being let out of a balloon. <sighs> Go and tell them what kept you, he said. On the near horizon, another column of dust was advancing. This was more like it. If there was going to be a massacre, then it ought to be shared by both sides. The City of the Dead lay before Tepic. After Ankh-Morpork, which was almost its direct opposite, in Ankh even the bedding was alive, it was probably the biggest city on the disc. Its streets were the finest, its architecture the most majestic and awe-inspiring. In population terms, the necropolis outstripped the other cities of the Old Kingdom, but its people didn't get out much, and there was nothing to do on Saturday nights. Until now. Now it thronged. Tepic watched from the top of a wind-etched obelisk, as the grey and brown, and here and there somewhat greenish, armies of the departed passed beneath him. The kings had been democratic. After the pyramids had been emptied, gangs of them had turned their attention to the lesser tombs, and now the necropolis really did have its tradesmen, its nobles, and even its artisans. Not that there was, by and large, any way of telling the difference. They were, to a corpse, heading for the Great Pyramid. It loomed like a carbuncle over the lesser, older buildings, and they all seemed very angry about something. Tepic dropped lightly onto the wide, flat roof of a mastaba, jogged to its far end, cleared the gap onto an ornamental sphinx, not without a moment's worry, but this one seemed inert enough, and from there it was but the throw of a grapnel to one of the lower stories of a step pyramid. The long light of the contentious sun lanced across the silent landscape as he leapt from monument to monument, zigzagging high above the shuffling army. Behind him, shoots appeared briefly in the ancient stone, cracking it a little, and then withered and died. This, said his blood as it tingled around his body, is what you trained for. Even Meriset couldn't mark you down for this. Speeding in the shadows above a silent city, running like a cat, finding handholds that would have perplexed a gecko, and at the destination, a victim. True, it was a billion tons of pyramid, and hitherto the largest client of an inhumation had been Patricio, the twenty-three-stone despot of Quirm, a monumental needle recording in bas-relief the achievements of a king four thousand years ago, and which would have been more pertinent if the wind-driven sand hadn't long ago eroded his name, provided a handy ladder, which needed only an expertly thrown grapnel from its top, lodging in the outstretched fingers of a forgotten monarch, to allow him a long, gentle arc onto the roof of a tomb. Running, climbing and swinging, hastily hammering crampons in the memorials of the dead, Tepic went forth. Pinpoints of firelight among the limestone pricked out the lines of the opposing armies. Deep and stylized though the enmity was between the two empires, they both abided by the ancient tradition that warfare wasn't undertaken at night, during harvest, or when wet. It was important enough to save up for special occasions. Going at it hammer and tongs just reduced the whole thing to a farce. 
In the twilight on both sides of the line came the busy sound of advanced woodwork in progress. It's said that generals are always ready to fight the last war over again. It had been thousands of years since the last war between Tassort and Ephebe, but generals have long memories, and this time they were ready for it. On both sides of the line, wooden horses were taking shape. It's the... it's gone, said Pataclasp 2B, slithering back down the pile of rubble. About time too, said his father. Help me fold up your brother. You sure it won't hurt him? Well, if we do it carefully, he can't move in time, that is, width, to us. So if no time can pass for him, nothing can hurt him. Pataclusp thought of the old days, when pyramid building had simply consisted of piling one block on another, and all you needed to remember was that you put less on top as you went up. And now it meant trying to put a crease in one of your sons. Right, he said doubtfully. Let's be off, then. He inched his way up the debris and poked his head over the top, just as the vanguard of the dead came round the corner of the nearest minor pyramid. His first thought was... This is it. They're coming to complain. He'd done his best. It wasn't always easy to build to a budget. Maybe not every lintel was exactly as per drawings. Perhaps the quality of the internal plasterwork wasn't always up to snuff, but they can't all be complaining. Not this many of them. Pataclusp 2B climbed up alongside him. His mouth dropped open. Where are they all coming from? he said. You're the expert, you tell me. Are they, uh, dead? Pataclusp scrutinised some of the approaching marchers. If they're not, some of them are awfully ill, he said. Let's make a run for it. Where to? Up the pyramid? The great pyramid loomed up behind them, its throbbing filling the air. Pataclusp stared at it. What's going to happen tonight, he said. What? Well, is it going to do whatever it did again? Tooby stared at him. Ah, <laughs> dunno. Can you find out? Only by waiting. I'm not even sure what it's done now. Are we going to like it? I, I shouldn't think so, Dad. Oh, dear. What's up now? Look over there. Heading towards the marching dead, trailing behind Kumi like a tail behind a comet, were the priests. It was hot and dark inside the horse. It was also very crowded. They waited, sweating. Young Autocue stuttered. What'll happen now, Sergeant? The sergeant moved afoot tentatively. The atmosphere would have induced claustrophobia in a sardine. Well, lad, they'll find us, see, and be so impressed they'll drag us all the way back to their city, and then when it's dark we'll leap out and put them to the sword. Or put the sword to them, one or the other. And then we'll sack the city, burn the walls, and sow the ground with salt. You remember, lad? I showed you on Friday. Oh. Moisture dripped from a score of brows. Several of the men were trying to compose a letter home, dragging stily across wax that was close to melting. And then what will happen, Sergeant? Why, lad, then we'll go home, heroes. Oh. The other soldiers sat stolidly looking at the wooden walls. Auto-Q shifted uneasily, still worried about something. My mum said to come back with my shield, or on it, Sergeant, he said. Jolly good lad, that's the spirit. We will be all right, though, won't we, Sergeant? The Sergeant stared into the fetid darkness. After a while, 
someone started to play the harmonica. Pataclusp half turned his head from the scene, and a voice by his ear said, You are the pyramid builder, aren't you? Another figure had joined them in their bolt hole, one who was black clad and moved in a way that made a cat's tread sound like a one-man band. Pataclusp nodded, unable to speak. He had had enough shocks for one day. Well, switch it off. Switch it off now. Tooby leaned over. Uh, who are you? he said. My name is Tepic. What, like the king? Yes, just like the king. Now turn it off. It's a pyramid. You can't turn off pyramids, said Tooby. Well then, make it flare. We, 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 <laughs> we tried that last night. Tooby pointed to the shattered capstone. Unroll 2A, Dad. Tepic regarded the flat brother. It's some sort of wall poster, is it? He said eventually. Tooby looked down. Tepic saw the movement and looked down also. He was ankle deep in green sprouts. Sorry, he said, I can't seem to shake it off. It can be dreadful, said Tooby frantically. I know how it is. I had this veruca once. Nothing would shift it. Tepic hunkered down by the cracked stone. This thing, he said, what's the significance? I mean, it's coated with metal. Why? There's got to be a, a sharp point for the flare, said Tooby. Is that all? This is gold, isn't it? It's, uh, it's electrum. Gold and silver alloy. The capstan has got to be made of electrum. Tepic peeled back the foil. This isn't all metal, he said mildly. Yes. Well, said Pataclusp, we found uh, that, that foil works just as well. Couldn't you use something cheaper, like steel? Pataclusp sneered. It hadn't been a good day. Sanity was a distant memory, but there were certain facts he knew for a fact. Wouldn't last for more than a year or two, he said. What with the dew and so forth? You'd lose the point. Wouldn't last more than two or three hundred times. Tepic leaned his head against the pyramid. It was cold and it hummed. He thought he could hear under the throbbing a faint rising tone. The pyramid towered over him. 2B could have told him that this was because the walls sloped in at precisely 56 degrees, and an effect known as battering made the pyramid loom even higher than it really was. He probably would have used words like perspective and virtual height as well. The black marble was glassy smooth. The masons had done well. The cracks between each silky panel were hardly wide enough to insert a knife. But wide enough, all the same. How about once, he said. End of CD 8